Well, over the past six weeks, uh, we've been looking at the book of 1 Corinthians and really seeing what God has to say to us through his word. Well, that's part of the pattern that we committed to here at Auckland EV, is kind of working chapter by chapter through books of the Bible because we want to hear what God has to say. You really don't want to hear what's out of my head um, because it would be boring and tiring and really not good. But we want to hear what God has to say. And so that's why we kind of work through books of the Bible like that, is so that we can kind of hear in context what he's saying through the way he's spoken through God's word, which excites me. Um, So why don't we pray that as we look at God's word today, um, that he would speak to us by his spirit, that he'd make his word come alive in our hearts and change us to be more like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you, the God of the world, chose to speak to us. That you would come and make yourself clear so that we may know you. We may know your love. We may see the way you have acted throughout history. And we may trust your son. We pray now that as we look at your word, as we go through this next section of 1 Corinthians, that you'd speak to us by your spirit, through your word, that as we open it up, you'd convict us of where we've been blinded to our rebellion against you. And we ask, Lord, that we may come out of hearing you and not forget it, but be changed to be more loving, to be more honouring to you, so we may bring you glory. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever lived in an apartment complex. Um, We've lived in a few in in our lives, Sarah and I. It seems to me that apartment um, complexes are always full of scandal. I don't know if that's what you found. Um, Our second apartment block was in an inner city suburb of Sydney called Marrickville. Marrickville is not the kind of nicest area, it's a little bit rough, but apparently the guy in the block next to us was was a drug baron. He was kind of just peddling drugs to people and we were always like, oh, I don't know if that's a safe place to live because he's going to protect his neighbours or it's got a shady place to live because weird people are going to be coming. You know, There's this scandal. Who is this guy? Um, the youth minister from the last church I was at, Matt, he, um, he lived in a block of units and one day he came home um, and went to drive in. He and his wife went to drive into the car park and it was blocked. It was all shut off. And he's like, what's going on? And they're like, oh, someone was stabbed in the car park. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> Now, normally they're not such weighty matters, right? Drug dealers and stabbings. More like the first apartment Sarah and I are in. You know, low-level scandal. It's like, who parked in the visitor's spot? Whose car's that? How, I mean, the, you're laughing because you've lived in apartments, right? Who, who gets the visitor's spot? We pay more money. We had one, one family's like, you, you came before us and so you get it cheaper. We have to pay more for our smaller house so we should get the visitor's spot. I'm just like, it's a visitor's spot. It says visitor. You're not a visitor. <laughs> so people come in. Um... <laughs> Or the third apartment block we were in, I could write a book about it. Seriously. It was like 20 20 apartments around. It was when I was at at Bible College. But there were some Christians and some kind of from outside. But I tell you, the bickering. The stories that would get passed on. Sylvia, Hawkeye we used to call her. She lived in the middle block right at the back. She could see everything. And you'd often see the curtains just peeped a little and she was kind of looking through. She's about 80 in the shade, right? She's got a walking frame and a crooked finger that was bent because of kind of arthritis. And if anything went wrong, she'd be like, what are you doing? And oh, Sylvia was great. She knew everything. In fact, she even knew stuff that no one else knew. I don't know if she made it up or what was going on, but it seemed to me that like everyone was in a scandal. Um, some, the body corporate was ripping them off and she's like pulling out receipts going, look how much I paid over the... I've been here since before decimal currencies, she used to say. 1966 I've been here since. And um, yeah. 
And how the angry man in unit number 12 had another fight. Did you hear that the other night? It was kind of scandal, right? I remember the first time we arrived, we were moving in, and um, we pulled up in the, in, in the spot, car park, look out, apartment block, uh, closest to where our, our, our unit was. And um, no sooner has we pulled up than Sylvia is sprinting, like with a walking frame, kind of down the kind of path. It took about five minutes, so we kind of unloaded a little bit. And she's like, out of my car park, what are you doing here? And she kind of went crazy, and we're like, whoa, until someone else who'd lived there before us um, went, oh, Sylvia, you've done your hair. And she's like, oh, thanks, Liz. And kind of was totally gone then. Uh, that's the level of scandal, generally. Um, after we got to know her, we, we became great friends, helped her out. She even let us use her car park for a while, which really annoyed someone else in our unit complex, so they slashed all our tyres. So, apartment blocks are full of scandal. And that's what you'd expect when you get a bunch of 20 families of all shapes and sizes and squish them into the smallest space you possibly can, right? But the church isn't a place where you should expect scandal. And that's Paul's point. Over the past few chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul's been talking about the scandal in the church. I follow this preacher. I follow that preacher. Your preacher's dumb. Well, your preacher's boring. Right? That's what they're going on about. They're crooked little fingers going, mine's better than yours, like the schoolyard fight. Then you find out someone's having an affair with their stepmother. Right? Gross. What's, what's that about? You're kind of like, and the church is proud. Well, the church in Corinth have come across another scandal. And this time, it's over the smallest things, right? Have a look at, at chapter 1. You'll need your Bibles there. If you haven't got a Bible, um, stick your hand up. Someone will pass one around. Um, yep, there's a couple up there. Some coming down. If you don't have a Bible at all, we'd love to give you this Bible. Um, so take it home. It's on us. Uh, if you do have a Bible, just remember to bring it next week. Um, that's great. Wait. Okay, we're looking at 1 Corinthians. Does someone have a page in that little black one that you can't read the text on because it's so small? 1,021. 1,021. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. This is what Paul says. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Or verse 6. One brother goes to law against another. The church that refused to judge a major matter of sexual immorality, just a chapter before, is too busy running off to the secular courts to judge about trivial matters. The church that should have pushed someone out is here now going, oh, but you took my $300, so I'm going to take you to court. They're trivial. They're tiny. They're, they're totally insignificant. And what's so scandalous about this is it's just not how a family should act. Right? Imagine for a moment you lend your parents $5,000. Right? You lend them five grand. Uh, but the investment they put it into goes bad. What do you do? Or worse still, your dad gambles it away on the horses, on the track. Five grand, gone. Now your dad's a Christian. Do you take him to court? No, of course you don't take your father to court. Even if he wasn't a Christian, he's your dad, right? It's family. You might not lend them money again. There are consequences. You might actually go, look, you can't keep doing this. And out of loving you, I'm not going to lend you money anymore. 
but you love them and care for them and say, Man, you, you know, if, if they've lost the money, you're like, well, I want to help you through this. If they've gambled on the horses, you're like, we need to go see someone, I'll come. You just don't take them to court. It's ridiculous. It looks stupid. It looks like a joke. And actually, <laughs> um, that's what people do. They watch this kind of stuff, people taking them to court. Um, on TV, I don't know if you've ever seen Judge Judy and kind of her craziness. Has anyone ever seen Judge Hatchet? Have a look at this clip. There needs to be sound. It's funny, right? We we watch that stuff because we're like, you guys are ridiculous. I saw another clip that I had. One one couple, they're kind of husband and wife, and she's like, I'm going to send a container around to get my stuff. And Judge Judy's like, you know, no, we'll send a police escort to get it. The guy's like, oh, you can't get it because I've taken it all. And they're like, rah, 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 rah. And all in front of you, it's like, this is so wrong. But it's funny. (laughs) Well, what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church is, for you to act like that amongst the church isn't just a joke. It's bad. And it's easy to sit here and poke fun at the Corinthians and go, you guys, you know, you what losers, what idiots, who in their right mind would do that, right? But what happens when you get a friend from church uh, to do some work at your house? They come around, they're a builder, they might put on an extra room, um, and then that room starts leaking a couple of years later. They're still in your church. What do you do? Or when someone kind of encourages you to join an investment thing, you think, oh yeah, that looks good, you, you, you check it out and you made the decision, but then as you get into it, you work out that it goes bad. What do you do then to a Christian brother in that case? Or say you buy a car from someone here. Say one of you buys someone else's car and then um, you know, the car's great, works well for a week and then needs a new engine. What are you going to do? Rubber hits home when it's our money, doesn't it? And it's close. And, and that person might go, look, I can't, I can't afford to pay for it. Sorry. Do you like... No. I want my five grand. I want the money for my car. What if it wasn't five grand? What if they'd lent you, like you'd lent someone 50,000? Would you go to court then? What about 500,000? Starting to feel it, aren't you? Oh, someone took five hundred. Someone took half a million dollars of my money in the church for whatever reasons. What lengths should we go to? Are we going to get on TV and look ridiculous? How, how does this play out? Well, that's Paul's issue with the Corinthian church that they're so in love with their rights, so intent on getting what they deserve, on, on getting the most out of someone else, they take their own church family to court. Do you know how pathetic that makes Christians look? Do you know how pathetic that makes the gospel of Jesus look? Picture this. Christians. People who claim they'll inherit the world. They'll get everything. They have every blessing. They look forward to life forever. There's nothing that we don't have in the life to come and the life now. Great relationship with God. Um, Sure, it's hard, but the Christian faith is awesome. It says God has given us the world, right? 
Those people are squabbling over loose change. Money, positions, rights. And everyone around them says, right, so that's what it's like to be a Christian. Just be like everyone else. Squabbling for the here and now. When you've been promised the world. Now, it's important to note here, these aren't criminal cases. They're matters of indifference, pretty much the original is saying. It's not like someone's committed murder and the church is like, shh, quick, quick, come in here, we'll cover it up. That's not what's on, on view. Or there's some kind of sexual abuse. I want to say clearly from the front that those instances you need to take straight to the authorities. It's a criminal matter. And in fact, you're legally required to do it in New Zealand. If, if a child or a vulnerable adult in your household, this is quote-unquote, if a child or a vulnerable adult in your household is being neglected or abused, then under the Crimes Amendment Act, number 3, 2011, you have to report the abuse. Failure to do so could make you liable for up to 10 years in prison. It's not saying, let's go all covert and keep it quiet and hush-hush. It's saying, just don't be ridiculous about taking trivial matters to the court. But if someone does something that is really wrong, well, the right response is to help them come and pay the penalty, and actually come before the courts and apologise, and do what's right. But Paul says that in those cases that aren't criminal, you have two options. And I've just realised, I forgot to give you an outline, it's last week's outline, isn't it? Anyone following? Oh well, there you go. Sorry about that. (laughs) Two options. Um, Suck it up, or sort it out. That's what Paul says in this situation. Have a look at verse 4. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters... Appoint as judges, even men of little account. Paul's like, look, just get Joe Average from among the church. You don't have to be a judge or kind of a barrister or any to have a, a major in legal stuff. Just get anyone. Sit them down, they'll work it out. It is not hard, right? You don't need to be a lawyer. And here's why he says that. And this is pretty amazing. Have a look at verse 2. Do you not know that the saints, Christians will judge the world. And if you're to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? The future of the Christian church, says Paul, is that we will judge the world. Now, I think I've thought about that before. Have you? We will judge the world? I'm like, is is Paul just on something here? Is he kind of tripping and making stuff up? So I had a look at Matthew 19, verse 28. It's on the screen. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, at that point, he's talking to the twelve apostles, so understand that. But he's saying that at least the twelve apostles will be judging the world, or at least the 12 tribes of Israel. Then Revelation, chapter 20, verse 4, um, this picture of John at the end, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given the authority to judge. Here Paul applies what Jesus says and John says, inspired by God, to everyone in the church. And the argument goes from greater to lesser. If, if we're going to judge the world, if we're going to judge angels... And just get anyone. You know, we can sort these issues out. It's, it's no problem at all. Stop mucking around. Stop going before the courts and sort it out. Sort it out. 
Seriously, he says. It's shameful, right? I don't know if you saw that. Just the chapter before, Paul said, I, I say these things not to shame you. When he was talking about the case of sexual immorality with the, with the, the guy's stepmother. Um, but now, Paul turns, have a look at verse 5. Like, this is worse, right? I say this to shame you. It's po- is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. The very church that has all wisdom, that prides themselves in the intellect of their leaders, in the craftiness of their speech, in their highfalutin kind of abilities, can't even seem to find someone wise enough to judge what to do with the 20 cents someone borrowed. But the shame doesn't stop there. While sorting it out is the logical solution, Paul kind of takes it to the next extreme. And this is where I think I find it hard. He tells them, sort it out or suck it up. (coughs) Sucking it up is a better solution. What do I mean? Have a look at verse 7. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. And you do this to your brothers. The greatest shame of this situation is, I think, the greatest shame of our situation. Lawsuits exist because of the desire to stand on your rights. To get what you deserve, what they owe me. And in some cases to get more than what you deserve. To kind of screw them just that little bit. Get a bit extra. Paul is saying that unity in the church, love for your Christian brother or sister, is more important than being wronged or defrauded by your own church family. Let me say it a different way. Being defrauded and wronged is far better than squabbling over money, possessions, status, pride. It's far more important to love and be wronged than to get what we deserve and be right. Why not let it go? Now, I'm not saying be stupid, right? I'm not saying you never bring it up with someone. If someone's done something, they've gone and stacked your car. I'm not saying just be like, well, I'm not going to say it, it's fine, whatever. You go to them and you say, hey, (laughs) you drove it, you smashed it, It'd be great if you could pay. And they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, I'd, I'd love to be able to pay. I just I haven't got any money at the moment. So then that's when you work out the wisdom. But say it gets to the point where um, they can't pay, let it go. Don't take it before the court. Be wronged. Be cheated. Do you see how countercultural this is? We, we so desire what's right, what's fair. Paul's saying... You will inherit the world. What's a car? What's $500,000? Is it really worth all the effort to take them to court? Is it really worth bringing the gospel into question? Making God's church look like a laughing stock? Because in the end, it's just money. Or pride. Or some other possession. Now... I'm not saying it won't cost you, and will. 
There's a cost to be, to be born here. But better cost me $5,000 than someone else the opportunity of knowing Jesus. Better it cost me $500,000 than a bunch of people go, oh, that's what Christianity is about. Just like us, a joke. I'm not even going to check it out. Imagine that. People missing out on eternity because of the way we portray the gospel. Because we are consumed with our rights. Friends, this is the radical call of the gospel that Paul's talking about. The gospel that he makes central. The gospel that we as a church want to make central. Sometimes the world, they're kind of like, they're happy to be defrauded, right? There's sometimes when people just go, look, it's not worth taking it to court. It's going to cost me more than I'll get back. So, you know, don't worry about it. We'll just let it go because, I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it's going to exceed the cost of proceedings. So it doesn't, doesn't matter. But we should willingly accept being defrauded. Not because it will cost us less, but for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of our brother, that we don't want to hurt them. And we don't want to hurt the church. Again, hold with me saying, I'm not saying just ignore it. Go talk with them. Um, talk about it. You know, actually, do, do the business of forgiveness with one another. But when push comes to shove, I want, us, I want me to feel the radical call of Jesus. Because you know why? Without God being wronged, we wouldn't be saved. If, if we are to cling to our rights and demand justice be paid, how can I do that and yet Jesus died in my place when he had done nothing wrong? If anyone's going to cry out, it's not fair, surely it's him, right? Surely he's the one to go, I didn't deserve this, and he didn't. But he willingly gave up his rights to be the God who created all things, who by him, for him, and through him, all things were made. The guy who invented blood, who spoke and, and creation came into existence, was willing to become part of his creation and die as a scumbag so that we may know God. What right do I have to say, I demand my rights, when God hasn't demanded his? If you are here today and you don't yet trust in Jesus, I want to say, right there at the cross is something amazing. That the creator of the world would die in your place so that we could be in right relationship with God. So that all the times we turned our back, all the times we'd sinned, and we're going to see what that means in a moment, that that, that could be forgiven, put aside, for our sake. If you haven't done business with God, if you don't yet trust in Jesus, then I want to encourage you today, don't go away without seriously checking Him out. Seeing the amazingness of the Creator of the universe die for you. How can I, who have been forgiven so much, hold you to ransom for so little? It might be the right thing to do to be defrauded and wronged, Paul says. But understand this. It's kind of the last point we'll go through. It's never right to wrong your brother or sister. It's never right to wrong your brother or sister. Do you get that? It might be okay to be wronged, but it's never right to wrong. 
It's not like there's some kind of license where you're like, awesome, the Christian church, I can just rock up there, borrow money from everyone and know that I don't have to pay them back. This is great. I'm going to rip these guys off. I'm just going to, well, I won't do it too much. I love them and you know, I get Jesus and I get a better life and they're not allowed to pay me back. I can borrow all their stuff. I can use all their house. I can trash their... Paul says no. That's just sick, right? What kind of brother are you to cheat your own family? Who does that? Who goes and steals from their parents or from their brother or sister deliberately? That's wrong. Now, I don't know where things are between us all at church. I don't know if there are kind of fights and disagreements amongst people. As far as I know, there's not. It's great. But there will be. As we grow, as we continue, as we live our lives, as we kind of do, live as, as Christians, but not perfect Christians, there are going to be disagreements. There are going to be times we rub one another up the wrong way. But if there's something between any of us, we should never seek to wrong someone else. We should never defraud someone else. And if we've done that or we're doing that, you need to put it right. You need to today work out when you're going to go and talk to that person. This week. Go and sort it out. Just say to them, look, I'm sorry that I've done this. It was wrong. Um, I don't know why I did it. Please forgive me. But do not for a second think that it's okay to continue hurting and defrauding the church. In all our interactions, no matter how hurtful or costly, the desire is to be reconciled with one another, right? That's what a family does. You, you join together. You don't kind of have fights and quarrels and just go off. You try and sort through things. Forgive and ask for forgiveness. But remember this, says Paul. Cheating and wronging one another is wicked. It's not who you are as Christians. That's why Paul goes on to verse 9. Have a look with me. And you kind of hear the weight of this. We're going to come back next week and start with verse 9. This, this chapter kind of ties up the end, this, this section ties up the end of, of 1 to 9 and kind of then introduces um, 9 to 20. So it's this kind of middle bit that's got two angles in it. But we'll go through. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. We'll look more at this, at this list next week, but here Paul's point is so strong. How dare you cheat your brother? Hear him. How dare you? Don't you know that those who sit in rebellion against God, those who are wicked, who turn against their brother and try and deceive them and defraud them, are looking down the barrel of hell. For they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Anyone who is an idolater, who puts anything before Jesus, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexual offenders, those actively engaged in homosexuality, thieves, People who dodge their tax, dodge copyright on music or take computer programs. Greedy, those who want what isn't due to them, who want more than really what they deserve. 
those who were drunkards, who were, who were sitting in, in, in consistently being drunk, those who were slanderers, who were putting a bad name on others without, without reason, those who were swindlers, kind of stealing stuff, taking it. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't do it. What's amazing here is that this list is by no means exhaustive. The list of ways we rebel against the way God made us, there's heaps more than that throughout the Bible. There's other lists of sins in the New Testament, and this doesn't cover them all. But even this cut-down list, I bet you felt the pinch somewhere, didn't you? I did. The point where you're like, wow. I also want us to note, this is no hierarchy of sin. Paul hasn't pinpointed homosexual practice as the sin above all others. It's not. All sin is sin. So don't raise certain things up as, oh, that's just so much more wrong. But please hear Paul's strong warning. The result of turning your back on God is hell. And if you're here new amongst us today and you don't yet trust in Jesus... I want to say that is the future that all people are looking down without Jesus. That all of us have turned our back on God and all of us deserve hell. And that's where we kind of hear in this passage the most amazing news. One of the most beautiful verses in the Bible is right here. Verse 11. And that's what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Paul is writing to a bunch of Christians who were like this. That was their past. That was what they were stuck in. See, we have no moral high ground to say, ah, how can you sin like that? There are Christians that have done every and any one of those. And here's the point. They are not totally and permanently excluded from the Church of God. There's hope. Whatever you've done, no matter how hard it was, no matter how bad it was, Jesus offers you forgiveness. There's nothing too much for him. Nothing. It is possible for those whose rebellious way of life demanded them and defined them to go to hell to be different. Do you ever find yourself stuck in sin coming back to the same thing like a dog returns to its vomit sometimes we're caught in all sorts of things whether it's sexual sin whether it's greed whether it's pride continually find yourself just wanting to let it go what Paul is saying is that there is hope come to Jesus put your trust in him and he will change you slowly. He doesn't promise that it all just go away, that there's kind of no more sin. It's just like, great, you know, nothing, no problems here. But he does promise to change us because Jesus has paid the price for us. That sin is now no longer going to be on our shoulders. The price has been paid for it. And that frees us to live a life that is more and more trusting in Jesus. And by his resurrection... God poured out His Spirit. And His Spirit comes and changes us and moulds us to be more like Him. Do you want to get rid of that? That whatever it is, that habitual return to turning your back on God, 
Jesus says there's hope. It's nothing to do with us. What we'll do with you, Jesus, is. So come to Jesus. Come and ask Him for forgiveness. Ask Him to take you and mould you and change you. For Jesus loved us so much that He was willing to be wronged, to die in our place, so we might know the love of God. Why don't we pray, hey? Father God, we thank you so much for the way you've shown your love to us. We thank you that uh, you were willingly wronged in that Jesus died in our place when he didn't deserve it so that we may be forgiven. Lord, show us where we kind of have these, uh, this desire to have small squabbles and kind of irritating and take people before court. Lord, vaccinate us from, from that just wickedness. And Father, we pray that as we fix our eyes on your Son, as we see what Jesus has done, as we see the love you've shown us in him, it would mean we would look forward to that inheritance which is ours. Not through anything we've done, but through what your Son has done for us. Lord, captivate our hearts. Change us and mould us to be like your Son who has shown his love for us immensely. Amen.